Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guests are Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Learning and Applied Improvisation at Second City in Chicago, and Anne Libera, Associate Professor in Comedy Writing and Performance at Columbia College in Chicago, and Artistic Consultant at the Second City, also in Chicago. I found Kelly and Anne's work in an article in the AMA Journal of Ethics. It was published in July of 2020, one of my favorite years. I don't know about you, but I just <laughs> loved 2020. We all did. <laughs> so when I found this article, it was linked to another one that caught my eye that was about how comedy and medicine can intersect. And I thought, no way, as soon as I saw this, because when I was in middle school, school 100 years ago, and realistically, it was in the mid 90s. There was nothing funny about going to medical school for me whatsoever. Okay. It just was not a joyful experience for me. But when I came across this link in that article, you're both the authors of this wonderful article called Improvised Caregiving or How a Famous Comedy Theater Found Itself in Healthcare. And I was in nerd heaven. Everyone who knows this podcast knows I am a nerd. And immediately when I was done reading it, I emailed or rather sent a chat message to Second City going, they're not going to answer me, but what the hell? I'm going to try anyway. Do you know Kelly emailed me the next day? I stood up and I did a little dance. So thank you for being here. We're happy to be here. We are. And I was going to say, no surprise, Kelly Leonard is extremely quick and responsive. So, well, I love generous thought leaders like this. You know, a lot of times, and there's, I'm not trying to throw shade on anyone, but you know, you find people that say, I'm just too busy. I've done that a bunch of times. Oh, don't have time. But, you know, Kelly's been very, very responsive. And I, I really, really appreciate that. And so, without further ado, I would love to jump into how on earth. You came into this work. To me, again, I didn't see the connection between improvisation and comedy, thinking it's in the category of entertainment and bringing that to the health and well being realm. So, uh, Adam Grant called me. That's how this started. So, Second, Second City. Um, I had re- uh, just recently stepped down from my position. I, I was a longtime producer, sort of creative head of Second City. Um, and I'd stepped down from that position and was trying to figure out what to do next. I, I was uh, basically a, a, a consultant for Second City. They, they gave me that title for a year, basically to build a bridge in or build a bridge out. And um, one of the programs that um, I brought Anne into uh, early, uh, she helped build it, uh, was a thing called the Second Science Project at the University of Chicago. So we were already working in this area of behavioral science and improvisation and, and the evidence uh, for the practices that we do. And then Adam calls me because he had a friend moving to Chicago. Her name is Ai Jen Poo. I was not familiar with her or her work. I soon would be. And she is uh, just recently uh, stepped down as the executive director of the Domestic Workers Alliance uh, in a group called Caring Across Generations. And uh, we sat down for lunch and this is like I think I came home and like, it was the second time I've had a conversation with an amazing uh, a woman uh, in a leadership position. And, and we just connected and we saw how the work we were doing at University of Chicago could easily pivot into the caregiving space. Um, and she happened, her group happened to be curating Aspen Ideas Festival. And we decided to uh, do some, we did, uh, Ann and I Jen led a, a workshop. Uh, and then we also did a presentation uh, that was hosted by a New York Times writer. Um, and that's how, that's how it all got kickstarted. I, I want to share too that, um, you know, the base of this work came from uh, my experience as I was the artistic director for the Second City Training Center for many years. And the experience of seeing students who went through our beginning improv program, and this is a program for people who just, you know, 
want to meet people. That it's not it's not meant to teach you how to become a final performer at the Second City. It's it's people from all walks of life. But the thing that happened was they would be in this program for a year and they would come back to me and they'd talk to me and say, this work changed my life. And what it didn't do was make me a star. What it did was make me a better communicator. It made my relationships better. It made uh, the way, it made my work life better. And that idea, the idea that as Kelly says, improvisation is yoga for your social skills that it's a practice, that we can teach people how to behave better and practice behaving in ways that are more healthy for them, um, is really the sort of underlying quality of both the Second Science Project, where we're using insights from behavioral science, and then really deeply meaningful work with the improvisational caregivers, where we're giving people tools that they can practice and then use. So take me back a little bit more to the theory. What was the spark that caused you both to decide there is a juxtaposition between the world of improvisation and the theory behind it, the principles behind improvisation and people's well-being, people's health? Oh, we, we've been there for a while. Um, you know, uh, a funny thing happened at Second City in, in the training center uh, was we started to notice certain people, a, a different kind of student was showing up. And it was it was clear as day that, that, that there was something going on here. And it turns out that there was a psychiatrist um, who was using improv classes at Second City essentially as group therapy. So he would send his patients say sign up for like level A classes and then and then we they would do their one-on-one -on -one session later and we actually ended up teaming up and creating an improv for social anxiety program and then we were brought in for a study using improvisation to work with parkinson's patients um, we have an improv um, and um, autism spectrum program and these are all small programs that started basically someone found us or someone wanted to do a study or someone showed up in another class. Yeah. And we just, you know, the spirit of improvisation is yes and we, you know, we were like, okay, let's 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 see. And and by collaborating with experts, we weren't just relying on our own uh, expertise, which is not in these various areas. But the great thing about improvisation is it's the it's the ultimate, it, we're teaching about how to collaborate well. So we're really good at collaborating. Um, and we're very good at giving others space um, and and we're not uh, afraid or we're not worried. And, and these are the, the phenomenon that we learn in behavioral science is there's just so many barriers that human beings put up um, out of fear. Uh, and improvisation is a practice in allowing you to get rid of that judgment of self and others and basically, you know, tramp the fear down and, and up the uh, openness to experience. And so that's an easy pivot to a space where, whether it's a mental health issue or even a, a health issue. And I mean, even in trauma, right? Uh, Bessel van der Kork writes about improvisation in The Body Keeps Score, uh, that those exercises and those practices are really useful for people to sort of, when they're trying to embody uh, their experience of healing. So, we, we, you know, and along this journey, you know, we ended up collaborating with the Cleveland Clinic and others. I think it just, it all happened at a time where the world was ready for this. Because I will tell you, I mean, Second City has worked in the corporate area for quite a long time. But like 15 years ago, a med no one in the medical profession is probably up for this. But I think enough, enough has been written about there's been enough studies, enough business books, like enough gurus uh, talking about this work that, uh, and, and then once people do it, they're like, I totally get it. Uh, so we, we were the uh, benefits of, we had the benefit of great timing. And I think one of the big things about improvisation that makes it so valuable to people who are looking to improve their lives in a variety of spaces, but particularly in spaces like the healthcare space where it's very complex is that you're not role-playing. You are doing exercises where you are yourself mm. and you are learning how it feels to shift the way you uh, interact, how to shift the way you work with someone else. So I'll give you an example 
of an exercise that we developed actually as part of the Second Science Project. And we were, uh, Heather Crusoe, who was the uh, scientist from the University of Chicago, who's now, is she UC? Uh, UCLA. I keep, <laughs> I don't know why I have a plaque on that. Nothing, nothing to do with how brilliant Heather is. But uh, uh, we were talking about how do you have useful conversations in which there is genuine disagreement, right? <laughs> how can we have, when we are polarized, how can we yeah. have disagreements? And we came up with a prompt called thank you because, and the way this works is if you and I are having, and it's based in uh, behavioral science around the power of gratitude, um, but we would set people up in a situation in which they genuinely had different points of view. And when we teach it, we use something fun like, uh, uh, which way the toilet paper goes. Turns out that is kind of polarizing, though. One of my favorite moments was when I brought that up and one of the scientists at the University of Chicago was like, no one cares about that. They all know that the right way to do the toilet paper is to have it go over and suddenly the room erupts in disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you had people practice using something they genuinely believe, right? And the cue of this exercise is that one person states their opinion and then the other person, before they disagree, and that disagreement can be real, but before they disagree, they have to state something that they found genuinely valuable in what their partner just said that they're grateful for. And then they don't have to agree with them. They can state what their, their area of disagreement but what it allows you to do is have this kind of warm, respectful, listening conversation. And you may not get to uh, a place of absolute agreement, but it gets you closer. So it's an empathy exercise. It, it, is, it is both an empathy exercise, but it's also an exercise to help you handle your own emotions when someone disagrees with you. Emotional intelligence, right. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, Xuan Zhao, who is a postdoc who worked with us, actually studied this exercise. And uh, using this exercise, people felt uh, stronger feelings of warmth towards each other. Uh, they felt like they were getting further into the con into the conflict and able that there were ways in which they might be able to resolve it. They stayed and in the conversation longer. In the conversation, right? And. Uh, the funny part was early on when we were working with it, we all, uh, there was a point at which a number of uh, the members of the team got a little bit cynical about it and like, oh, you know, thank you because, and uh, until we realized that we were using it on each other when we were having genuine disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> and that it worked. That when we were genuinely in disagreement, it's a, like, it's, it, when you're in that space of, of conflict, it is a genuine way to, to help yourself in terms of emotional intelligence, indeed, and to get to a different place with another person. And I think you can look at the world we live in right now and understand why that might be an important practice. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and I love that you just said that word. It was yes, because it ties into what I was observing while you were both talking. This posture, it's a posture and a lifestyle. Yes, and and living improvisation. It's not a container or a tool to be used in specific circumstances. It sounds like to me that you both live that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be. It, it can be used in a variety of ways. What I think Anne and I, the reason we're so passionate about this is, is that we have found success in our lives when we simply follow those principles. And although we are considered experts in our field, we don't do that all the time because mm -hmm. we're human. Mm -hmm. And and that's when we don't succeed. And, you know, so there's no perfection. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, I was just having lunch with uh, um, some folks I, I've worked with, and we were just talking about the fact that, like, I think Nick Epley is one of the scientists we work with. And one of his uh, uh, papers, he talks about the fact that most human interaction 80% is wrong. Like we get about 20% right. We, we miss here, we don't get the gist of it, we forget all those things. And if that is even remotely true, uh, the idea of entering into a conversation with humble curiosity um, mm -hmm. is gives you a, an incredible edge because most of us aren't doing that. 
And what we also know that is human beings crave connection and they just want to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. More so than fame, more so than wealth, uh, they want to be seen and heard. Uh, and so if you can do that for someone else, the positives of that are limitless in terms of what human beings can do together. And I think the reason, thank you, because because I talk about it a lot in, in various keynotes that I give, and it resonates with a lot of people, I think because they're looking around the world they're in, maybe it's school, maybe it's work, culture, politics, all of that, and we're seeing the results of the opposite, um, the, these uh, illusory bubbles that exist. Um, and we're going to get nowhere if we're not doing this together. Well, and again, I keep coming back to the idea of practice. And and I have I have a yoga practice. I have a meditation practice. It's not easy to do this. It's not somebody saying, "Oh, just you know, just yes and, just use thank you because." Mm-hmm. These are not the, the, that someone can tell you to see someone <laughs> uh, and and recognize them for who they are. But but it's not it's not natural because we're also wired to protect ourselves and defend ourselves as a deep biological need as well. Yeah. Uh, Ann and I both listening to this podcast recently, our friend Scott Barry Kaufman is a scientist had another scientist and just talking about the power of not wanting to be otherized, uh, which <laughs> will allow you to, um, uh, further affection. Like, you know, it, you know, it's not real. And and when you and and he has very specific research that they've done where they've people have sort of agreed with something that didn't happen because it's a part of their in group and then when they go have a one on one deep conversation just dramatically increases the fact that people admit the untruth um, and so and and the other thing is like I, I don't know how many biases they've unco- something like 120 I think classified. Uh, if there are that many biases operating in inside human interaction, I, I, I can't believe we can feed and clean ourselves, you know, like, you know how, <laughs> let alone build businesses. And, you know, so so the, the, life is a wonder that, that we're able to do this. But it really to, to do things. And I think we I, I think experientially, I felt this, too, is for people who are successful. And I'm not talking about people who are rich. I'm talking about people who are happy. They they live life differently. <laughs> They walk through the world differently, um, and and they have a sense of peace and a sense of calm. Uh, and not to say that their lives are perfect because they aren't, um, but that I really think a lot of this stuff can be rooted down to what we know within neuroscience, behavioral science, positive psychology, and then you know those insights mean nothing if they can't be activated. And one of the ways they get activated, as Anne says, is through practice and, and not just scrimmaging. So, you know, like baseball, the thing about all peak performers, baseball players play catch before the game. Yo-Yo mm-hmm. Ma still does his scales. But the, like the business world has billions of dollars on the line. And how many of those people are practicing? They don't. And again, I mean, one of the, you know, cornerstones of the Improvisation for Caregivers program as we were working with primarily people who were caretaking for uh, family members with dementia or Alzheimer's. And... One of the key tenets of improvisation, of course, is yes and. But it's really hard when your mom or your dad uh, tells you, oh, I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, go down to the store and uh, meet, uh, meet a friend. Uh, and you know that that friend doesn't exist anymore. Your initial response is going to be, no. Hmm. Um, so the ability to practice being with them and being with them in the world that they're in and saying yes. And that's mean that you, have, you say, yes, go to the store. It means that you can say, yes, I see that that's something you want to do. And that's not, it's not natural. Does your, uh, you started to mention your yoga and your meditation practices. Do they help you take that pause in the moment so that you can access the yes and so you can have more of the interaction that you want to have? For for me, yes, the the ability to, uh, I mean, it it feels like it's all one thing, but the difference is when I'm doing my yoga practice or when I'm doing med- my meditation practice, I'm not doing it with other people. I'm doing it by myself, and so for me, one of the wonderful things about bringing improvisation into it is that, you know, you know, that moment when you're like, you're done with your yoga practice and you're like, I am so centered. It's all here. <laughs> and then you have a conversation with someone. Um, there's a real, there's a real uh, continuum 
where I can be, you know, there's the, the essence of improvisation is being present with someone. The essence of what we call ensemble practice is about being in the moment with the people who are there with you now. And so it, it to me, it's a really natural extension. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a different kind. I mean, it's, it's, it's a natural extension, but there's a difference to it. it and, and when I can apply them all together, it makes a huge difference. Can you give us an example of yes and for people who are not really familiar with that terminology? A story, example. Sure. Uh, so the the root of this that we we discovered um, scientifically comes from behavioral economics. Um, so um, in behavioral economics, uh, they, it's shown that people's default position is to do nothing or say no. So mm-hmm. we, that 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 is which most people sort of lean to. Mm-hmm. So literally, yes and is a nudge uh, to do the opposite. Um, and so when I talk about yes and in various contexts, I'm most talking about the beginning, uh, the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of a brainstorm, uh, the beginning of a project. It's a way to get all an abundance of ideas out there, everyone participating, everyone feeling involved. Uh, And that's really vital uh, with the information that we know, which is uh, more diverse views from diverse team members is the way to get better original insights and ideas. So yes and operates at the front end of the creativity to innovation process. So and creativity and innovation are two different things. Creativity is messy. It, there's a lot of failure. That's that's all yes and. That's the thing. But if you want to innovate, uh, that's when you bring out the no. And no is very good. No is good for boundaries. No is good for framing mm. new ideas uh, because that's innovation. Innovation is now I'm going to I'm going to take all this stuff and turn it into something. So there's this bricolage uh, uh, thing that's working here, which is, oh, I've got all this variety of, of different ideas from, from my yes and, and now uh, we can synthesize and, and draw down. And uh, there's a thing called the IKEA effect, which our friend Mike Norton uh, from Harvard uh, uh, studies, uh, which is that human beings uh, value more uh, the work they feel they participated in. So with yes and, everyone's working worked on it. Everyone's participated. And, and then it doesn't matter if their, you know, their five things didn't end up because they're they're part of that conversation, that team. So it speaks to uh, human beings and how they tick, uh, but also to this process of how, how truly do we, everyone says they want creativity and they want innovation. Very few people know either they conflate those two terms and they don't understand the process by which one gets there. And one thing, and I'm very lucky about Yes, she is a teacher of improvisation, uh, but my many years uh, leading the Second City is the Second City creative process for creating a new show is everything we're talking about in a 12-week period or a 10-week period. You know, where you start, the, the it's an ensemble that is, that is uh, while they have a director, uh, there's a concept called follow the follower. So at any time, whoever's got the good idea, that's the one we're running with. And then it trades off at different times. And everyone's comfortable with that because we're all taught in this, this, this way. We yes and, that first four weeks, we are yes ending every idea. And then we are uh, pruning and editing and mm-hmm. figuring out the other things we need. Um, and it's a very protected environment. It's like the scientific method for creating theater because we're doing this all in front of audiences. And they're telling us if they're laughing or not laughing, what's working and what isn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And again, I'm going to come just come back to, because yes and is a concept, but it's also, again, a really simple practice um, that uh, I can listen to you and build on what you say, and I can literally use that prompt to say yes and this. Um, and I'm teaching a class right now, actually at Northwestern, uh, on in the entrepreneurship department. And as part of this class, I have my students. We practice stuff in class, but then I have them bring it into their real lives, and they keep a, a, a reflection journal. And uh, a number of them said that what was so interesting to them about using yes and in their real life was that it created warmth it created closeness it got them to they talked about talking uh, about talking to their parents uh on the phone mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that most of the time when they talk to their parents when they call home it's an exchange of information and that when they used yes and they had deeper 
conversations mm. because it wasn't just my turn and your turn. Instead, I was listening to you and I was listening for something to build off of. I was just talking to a very respected colleague. He was coaching with me in the Alt MBA and I was talking to him about the power of curiosity and I consider him to be a curiosity superhero. He's always been a curious person. He said, why was his favorite question since he can remember? Mm -hmm. And he started drifting into a conversation about reflections regarding his relationship with his mother. They were very, very close. She passed away 20 years ago. But it occurred to me while he was talking that because he was able to always ask those whys and his mother was open to it and actually did the same thing with him, that they were able to foster this deeper connection very early. And I think if part of what we're saying or not saying here is that curiosity is a practice folded into yes and. That's right. We have a phrase, replace blame with curiosity. And, and if you can do that, um, that's a very powerful tool to have in your toolbox. So it, it, it cuts off the quick emotional the fear of flight or fawn, um, and instead allows you because, it, like, we don't know, we don't know what what someone is going through and why they might mm-hmm. have just said that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the the uh, phrase? It's like, um, I'm speeding because I have an emergency. You're speeding because you're an asshole. <laughs> it's the way we we view the world because it's the only way we know how to view the world. However, when 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 you practice empathy. Um, uh, and it's not just about living in someone else's shoes, because that could also trigger sort of an, an emotional thing, that will, uh, uh, which will hide the thing, because I can't say the word, uh, hide the thing, uh, maybe because you're, you're emotional as well. So this, this curiosity, there's a little bit of distance, um, but there's, you're, you're open. You're open to whatever actually might be going on, and you can deflate, and you can... This is where thank you because comes in. Maybe you can actually turn turn that. I, this is a, like a very early business lesson I had at Second City when I was the director of sales. So this is like in the early '90s. Was that I, there was a group that came and we do a lot of business with groups, and they had, they had a bad experience, and it just sort of felt to me instinctively. I'm like, all right, well, I I, I don't want to lose you as a client. I, I, how can I make this up to you? And what if we just gave your next group of is free? And if it goes well, we'll stay in business together because everyone makes mistakes. Well, they came, they had a great time and they stayed on. And I was like, oh, like that, that's just like, people don't normally do things like that. And that just felt to me like the right thing to do. And it was by sort of, again, not getting emotional, but getting curious about the bad experience and then offering something. Um, and, and, you know, I think just, just generally speaking, we jump to conclusions all the time. You know, this is uh, uh, Anne uh, turned me on to Danny Kahneman's work. Uh, he mm-hmm. wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. and and you know, System One, System Two thinking. Mm-hmm. If you think about what an improviser is doing, is they're doing switching back and forth from both System One, System Two, System One, System Two, because you're having to deeply listen to what the person is saying without pre-planning, and then you have to come back to your well of experiences that are going to allow you to come out with a sentence that is going to be understandable to the audience and the person across from you that is building upon what the other person said and very good improvisers. It looks like magic, but it's not. It's, it's just this, they, they practice so much of this divergent thinking, which is a key element uh, to being creative. And then extending that, yes, that works great on stage. How would that work in life, living a creative life? We talked a little bit about Wanting to be part of a community, the sense of belonging and acceptance, which is rooted in us, tri- tribal, and that's how we survived, yep. community. But then there's also what the brain does, and I know this is part of the thinking fast and, and slow dynamic, and he breaks this down, but there's also the part of us that needs to categorize, to take shortcuts. Our brain wants to neatly create yep categories to, again, to keep us safe. So with that mindset, well, again, when I remember when I was in medical school, I didn't feel a sense of community. I didn't Mm. feel a sense of collaboration. It was never about abundance. You know, Mm -hmm. we didn't have this terminology back in that time. It was scarcity and it was fight for position. So how on earth do you gather? Because I could see this working, say, for 
caregivers who gather together because they don't have a position to defend necessarily. But what about if you take a group of medical students or my husband is an attorney. We both are University of Chicago alum. I went for undergrad, he went for undergrad and law school. Then I went into Loyola for medical school. But we both experienced extreme competition. And not to say that we didn't make friends there. You could, and that was fine. But at the end of the day, you really had to fight for your position. So if you have a group of people like that who are not used to working together, I'll give another quick example, rounding. You'd be on rounds with the attending, the the, res, the different residents, everybody has a rank depending on the length of your coat and all that. And <laughs> and then the, the attending or the chief resident would turn around and grill you a medical student. Do you know this answer? And if you didn't, you look like an ass because then the next person did. And you know, so it was always this sense of survival. All that long-winded to say, number one, I wish you had been around when I had been a medical student. But secondly, what is your experience like with groups that have that mindset? So there's a couple. So first of all, if you go to the University of Chicago Law School today, you are actually taking one of our programs as an orientation program. Mm. And they've been doing that for the last like four years, four or five years. And I mean, we we saw this in action ourselves. Uh, our, our daughter, Nora, was diagnosed with cancer when she was 16. Mm. And we spent a lot of time at Lurie Children's Hospital. Mm. Um, and what we ended up doing was utilizing all these practices and these exercises in her hospital room. So uh, one exercise that Anne developed uh, is called, I think you invented this one, yeah, university. In some ways, it's applied comedy more than it's applied improvisation. Um, it's called universal unique. Uh, and in the exercise, it's it's really about helping you practice um, small amounts of self-disclosure and to see the benefits of small amounts of self-disclosure, that sharing little things about yourself. So in the exercise, we'll have someone describe what people do when they grocery shop for about a minute. Generically. Generically. And then they describe what they do when they grocery shop. Um, and again, this isn't particularly uh, vulnerable information. This is this is just small amounts of personal detail. And immediately, uh, it's a different relationship. Mm. And the discovery that it's funny, but it's also it. it and literally, there's a there's great uh, re- research around the fact that we tend to look at other people and not think of them as having a mind as being really another per- human, right? That if you share little bits, little small amounts of self-disclosures, it, it changes their perspective for you. And we actually, when Nora was in the hospital, we practiced that. When a new doctor came in, when a new team came in, when a new nurse came in, um, we would give them small details about us, about Nora, about our lives, and we and Kelly was. Uh, I'm somewhat of an introvert, uh, uh, and that so it was really hard for me. Kelly did it every time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I and, and and what I saw was that his choosing to do that made an enormous difference in the way that our doctors, our nurses, the you know, is is 15 people coming through at any given time? And it's a new person. Yeah, specifically. We were on, it was rounds one day and they came in and this this group all knew Nora. And we have uh, in, uh, a Bernese Mountain Dog, 100 pound Bernese Mountain Dog named Benchley, who's an asshole. He's an asshole. He's not nice. <laughs> and most Bernese Mountain Dogs are lovely. He's not. He just loves us. Uh, and uh, Nora literally got every single doctor uh, to take out their phone and show us a picture of their pet. And it was almost all dogs. And it was it was like and it, and it was such a great moment of mm-hmm. equalizing in a in a situation where, as you suggested before, is is anything but equal. But that happened because this stuff is contagious, and and it and and you know like everyone played the game, uh, and and we utilized that stuff all the time and really created an ensemble of caregivers 
um, w- as opposed to because we could we could see that she got better care, and but we also saw that we were part of why that happened because <laughs> everyone saw her in her complexity, and so if there was something like really wrong, they saw it. And if there was, I mean, I have doctors say to me, he's like, if if you guys, I know you, if you called, uh, I'm going to have you come into the emergency room because you're not calling when it's like, it's like, because everyone knew us. Um, and that was, it was a great deal of self-disclosure and it was a great deal because you're so vulnerable, you know, in that, in that situation. Um, and that, you know, we had created this program and then we had to apply it to this horrible, horrible situation, which didn't turn out well. Um, and then that was that was a whole grief journey that we had to go through, um, wherein we're also h- how do we draw from our work to find some resiliency and mm. deal with our grief and our trauma. And Anne was talking about her meditation practice, and then I started a a workout practice. And so like and, and then recognizing the improvisation is embodied. So it's like it's so vital to sync those things up, and it's hard, mm. especially right now. Yeah, I think. Again, you know, it was it was a very difficult time. But what? But in in the conversations that we had with the with the doctors and nurses afterwards too, was to say, how do we, you know, this is well. And part of the discussion was, you know, of course, and you know this in medicine, the idea is to not have an emotional connection, which was really tough for me. And and I think, but but the discussion that we had. Uh, afterwards, in working with some of these exercises uh, uh, with the doctors and nurses, was was that maybe that maybe that's not quite right. Yeah. Maybe maybe that little bit of sharing, that little bit of connection, is what creates compassion and uh, and community. And as we said, ensemble. I used to do this little trick when I was practicing. We were looking at slides. So you can see how easy it is to be completely disconnected from this is not a person, this is a number, this is tissue on a slide. Whenever I found myself getting tired and I couldn't get up and walk around or something, I would stop and say, this is somebody's mother, sister, aunt, whatever, you know, to humanize. That was really important to me. And I... Yeah, I I don't know how you care for people. I understand the ideas to resist burnout or to protect yourself yeah. as a caregiver, but at the same time, how do you? It, it's a dangerous tipping point then to go into the land of deta- complete detachment. You know, the Grant study is this famous study that Harvard has been doing for eighty years uh, with the same group of men. Um, in terms of judging what makes people happy. And overwhelmingly, mm. it is one thing and it's relationships. Mm. And so I think this idea of taking away the most important thing inside a, a medical experience <laughs> is nuts. It's like, n- no, use it. And it's it, and again, as Anna and I have talked about, it doesn't mean you're sharing every deep, dark secret. You just know we work at Second City and we've got a a, a dog, you know, either or whatever. Forging connection. And the other thing I was thinking of is the way you talked about that, especially in a difficult situation, which I'm really sorry to hear about, by the way, um, is the fact, the simple fact that we as human beings do want joy. And... It doesn't just come to. It, 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 I think we were we were so betrayed by our media and our culture uh, to you know the, the sole genius. You know, like 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 Thomas Edison did this himself when he had mm. tons of people in a workshop mm. or, or or Steve Jobs or whatever. Um, great man theory, um, and also that that like creative people just have these like amazing uh, insights that dawn. It's like no, it comes from work and comes from practice over and over and over again. And it comes from groups of people. We never do anything alone. Even if we're alone in a room, our, our whatever our endeavor is at some point is gonna to touch other people. They're either gonna, someone else is gonna buy it or, or pay for it or help support it or whatever. So tending to what, and, and this is one of the things that was very frustrating as we started to go deep with the behavioral science community is recognizing 
that the one thing that really hasn't been deeply studied is uh, small groups. So the, you, most most studies are have to be you know just like a bunch of numbers uh, to prove a phenomenon, but in reality, most of us operate in small groups. Most of us have teams of six, 10, 15, that. And so, you know, we would get these arguments with the scientists because they'd be like, no, brainstorming doesn't work. And we're like, okay, <laughs> first of all, that literature, that literature is shoddy. But secondly, the way we do it at Second City with a group of six actors uh, working together over a maybe year and a half, two year period, like from, from the outside feels like that's the right thing. Like they, these are well-practiced in the same stuff. They've got all these rules. They all understand it as they're coming in, but that it would take forever to study that. And, and it would, wouldn't be a big enough replication for size. So, so we're missing uh, literature that actually speaks to the way most of us function in our various capacities, whether it's inside our families, inside our work groups, inside our friend groups. Mm -hmm. Okay, shifting more to the practical then. So can you tell us about the actual programming that you do have in place uh, at Second City available for, I'll back up a little bit. I was looking at your website, which I absolutely loved. And I was looking at the collaboration area. And it looks like you do have a lot of programming. And one of the Blessings, and some people look at it as a curse, but I think having more virtual access yeah. was a good thing yeah. because you can reach more people, even though people are having Zoom fatigue, fine. But um, there's more opportunity now. You innovated, actually, I saw that on the website to adapt because you couldn't have in-person gatherings. So what are what are some practical offerings you have for people who may not imagine that they can get help for X issue, but there's this community that can help them? Uh, there, there are so many different kinds of classes. So we're, we're doing both virtual and in-person now, uh, both at Second City, our theaters in Chicago and Toronto, uh, and then all these virtual offerings. So the virtual offerings, are, there's there's drop-ins where you can just pop in a couple times and see what it feels like. Any beginning improv class is going to be worth your time if you haven't done this work because all those basic principles are we we've talked about some of them here. You learn about yes anding. You learn how to do that practice. Very easy to do in in virtual and of course live environments as well. So in addition to like beginning classes, specialty classes, then we've got the the conservatory, which you do have to audition, and that's people who are generally interested in being on one of our stages or getting to SNL, that sort of thing. We have a ton of corporate offerings, both virtual and in person. So we work with all different kinds of teams. We get brought in to tech companies and law firms and consultancies and you know retail. All, again, speaking to the fact that. Uh, uh, I don't care what industry you're in. If you have a business problem, your business problem is probably related to human to human problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that that is just like it doesn't matter if it's a, a law firm or, or an advertising firm. The, the issues are that human beings that have a hard time interacting and working well together. So any if someone might be bringing us in for storytelling or communication or resiliency or agility, but it's really about my humans with my other humans. <laughs> and so, you know, and it, it maybe is a little bit of all those things. I, I want to do a quick shout out to, to our program, Humor Doesn't Retire, which is mm -hmm. uh, improvisation for uh, uh, this slightly older set. But I, and I want to, I'm going to share. So uh, I want to share a story. Actually, I was uh, in a yoga class and uh, one of the women in my class learned that I worked at Second City. And she said, so here's the deal. My father... Uh, started taking humor doesn't require retire classes at Second City, and she said, uh, and he did it because he thinks he's very funny. Um, <laughs> he likes to make fun of my mother, uh, uh, and she said, and it was so interesting. She said he, she said, and I said, well, has he is he gotten funnier? She said, what's interesting is no, he's not gotten any funnier. <laughs> but the difference is, she said, this year for the first time at the family Thanksgiving holiday, normally he would disappear into the other room and, and uh, watch TV after dinner was over. 
This year, for the first time, he stayed with the rest of the family and joined in the conversation. Improved relationships. I just said he's not any funnier, but he, but he's <laughs> learned how to have how to have those different things. So I just I wanted to give that a shout out because I think it's it's just an opportunity to for people to again I'm going to harp on this. It's an opportunity to practice being in conversation with people. It's an opportunity to practice listening and responding. It's an opportunity to practice best practices for doing those things, as well as just play, which we haven't talked a lot about in terms of in, in this conversation, but play is one of the wonderful ways in which we can use humor mm-hmm. and use comedy in, in a healthy fashion. Bringing those little moments of play is is a way of creating connection and a way of uh, of changing dynamics between people. Um, that is that without in without you know making jokes can has lots of complications around it, but having a little bit of play with someone is a way of keeping that connection. So. And what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? So this is interesting. This is, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Gretchen Rubin. Which is, this is also her definition mm-hmm. of happiness, which is feeling good and feeling right in an atmosphere of growth. And for me, that is sort of the essence of health as well. Thank you, Kelly. This is hard. I, I literally I'm I'm usually like very good at giving quippy, well-framed, well-contextualized sound bites. And I don't think I have one for you. So I'm going to improvise my answer. Clarity of mind when your body is operating as well as it can. And and I think a, a theme that came up today that I don't know people would normally tie to health, which is curiosity. Because I think by maintaining curiosity, that makes you open to experience open to ideas, open to change. Um, We don't often allow ourselves to change. Change is hard. Uh, And I know for myself, uh, because I have changed quite a bit throughout my life. uh, And and that has been a net huge positive. Um, Because, you know, especially at my age and where where Anne and I started out at this comedy theater, um, you know, it was a very different place when we were coming up to what it is now. And there was some bad stuff. Uh, there was some other stuff that we can't, you cannot look at 1988 with 2022 eyes um, and judge everyone. Uh, but you can uh, exist in the year 2022 and um, operate with the manual you have now. And that's an improved manual. Uh, my friend Dolly Chug, uh, who's a uh, NY Stern professor, wrote a great book called The Person You Mean to Be. Uh, talks about uh, viewing uh, things like DE&I uh, like we would an upgrade on our iPhone. You know, it's like you, you're going to take the upgrade every year. Like, so if you if you get more information, better information about how to operate in the world, why would you not use it? And I think that's a better analogy. Atmosphere of growth, I think, is a, a significant part of being healthy. That yeah. well, and, and um, you know. I, I'll talk about physical fitness for a second because I struggled. I hated uh, gym class uh, because I am not athletic. Uh, and it was decades before I realized, oh, no, it's just about getting it. It's about getting better. It's about working with yourself, mm. being you who you are mm. and, 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 growing, and, and growing and building strength and skill and, and, and all of those things. And that's, and, and that really shifted my mindset to a whole element of health, right? Thank you. Okay, and now it's time for me to contend with Miss Imposter Syndrome, Miss Perfectionism, because <laughs> those all came up. To, I went to medical school. <laughs> all you have to do, all you have to do to do this is say the next thing, one word, just say the next thing, and we're gonna we're uh, we're gonna start it. I, uh, Kelly, let's let's have a very simple title for this story. Um, 
the physician and the improvisers. <laughs> uh, but we're going to give ourselves a little bit of runway to practice. So we're going to start with once upon a time. So I'll start once upon a time. There was an physician who felt the burning of passion. But they met several improvisers who gave them trouble and taught them hope. Well, that's the end. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> what we made? Took some twists, took some, some turns. <laughs> this is the classic, all of us are better than one of us. That story can never be done. It will never be done again. Um, and, and it was I never wanna, done before. I want to ask, because this is the teacher in me, uh, how did it feel for you? What did you, what did you notice? It felt, okay, so it felt like a test at first. Uh-huh. And then just kind of watching your faces and, and the the joy, I said, okay, let me just let go and trust. So then I did that. And then I started to feel like a uh, a little girl, like I was having fun. Yeah. That, 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 that's an aspect of our work, yeah. right? Is this the, the, the thing we steadily lose from mm-hmm. childhood? We, as children, we play with freedom. Anything is, is our world. And there are, our friends Jennifer Acker and, and Naomi Bagdonis wrote a book called Humor Seriously. And this research is in there that, you know, we just lose play and humor as we get into, especially get into the workplace, and we don't get it back till we retire. And there's like studies based on that. It's like it, the educational system work saps us of play and laughter. And, and, and that's, they do that needlessly and at their own peril. Wow. This was spectacular. I can't tell you how grateful I am for this entire conversation and experience. It was fun. It was fun. I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It really means a lot to me. One of my higher purposes in life is to help women thrive, not just survive. Here's a testimonial about my work from a trusted and respected colleague, author, coach, Bernadette Jiwa. In a world that is constantly telling us who we should be, it's very hard to show up as yourself and you're helping people to do that every day. If you want to work with me, if you don't want to just settle, contact me at nphealthintegration.com. Let's connect. Let's connect.